Hi, everybody, and welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne. That is Chris Sacknessum. Chris, how are you doing this evening? Very well, David. Happy Easter. Happy Easter to you. Do anything fun? Uh, no, I've been just pretty much uh, working heavily, but uh, I did a few. I did one art project with kind of a rebirth, uh, resurrection theme. Part of my series of imitating uh, the great uh, Paleolithic cave art pieces, uh, which I know you're a fan of too. Mm -hmm. um, I think those are just you know the beginning of culture with a capital C on so many levels. Uh, I just I'm I'm so daunted by what those lost artists of the past were be, you know, able to create. And the fact that, that it, it very clearly is uh, a moment of where, where magic and art were, were literally the same process, mm -hmm. the same worldview, the same mindset, which I think kind of uh, relates to, to so much of what we've been talking about on the show. Um, and I think, you know, obviously before, long before any... Uh, formal religious ideas of rebirth or reincarnation came along that uh, the sense of these lost people of the past inventing a notion of culture as a form of magic to transcend time and nothing says transcendence of time better than the cave paintings mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. so I think that's kind of a cool larger Easter thing free of uh, the Christian tradition uh, free of even the pagan tradition, you know, well before all of that, there was this idea of kind of being able to uh, somehow give birth to ourselves continuously through mm -hmm. the mechanisms of art and magic. That's interesting. And it does seem that the cave paintings in particular, that was the birth of a sort of self-created mystery in a way. We kind of began that the first cave painting was kind of the first real question. I guess, in a lot of ways. That's a beautiful way to put it. I think that's, uh, it's a very, you know, it really does. It gets to the heart of all human questions. Um, the, the appearance versus reality, you know, for the first time people were asking about, well, is, you know, are the, are the way things look, the way things really are, uh, abstraction, representation, repeatability, perspective. You know, we've talked about perspectivism. So much is in, you know, one antelope on a wall and particularly when the antelope is combined with some strange horned dream creature you know mm -hmm. that could never have existed and yet did you know did and does still exist right excitingly um, yeah first yeah. question i i th those that's exactly the way i think of uh those still very living but ghostly figures uh in all our pasts that's part of a world legacy. Nobody owns the, the right to the legacy of those people. It belongs to everyone. Uh, that's what they were. They were the first questioners. They were. And because I've been thinking about this a lot with regards to writing in general, and I think that writing is often conceived of as a creation, as finding answers for things, right? And... I was thinking about it and I was like, no, writing is more, it's more along the lines of finding new and interesting uh, mysteries. There's a, a great quote from a guy, uh, Bio Akomalafe, who uh, is just a really interesting thinker in terms of 
reconstructing the narratives that we have for our, our present moment. And he talks about uh, art rather than, than answering questions. This, he says the, the, bewilderment, the bewilderment sets it free from the cage of reason, right? And the idea of being mystified and being confused as the sole function of the artwork uh, really unlocked a lot of a lot of stuff for me in my mind but uh, I couldn't agree with that more that's something I'm really stressing in uh, the Rutledge Press textbook it's something I stress in my teaching I think that that shift in in paradigm from having the right answer having the right answer you know which paralyzes students and and everyone you know it, it establishes self-esteem problems and it just creates such a terrible idea of what education and the possibilities of imaginative life are that it should really be about uh, you know answering ever more interest or raising ever more interesting questions you know mm -hmm, mm -hmm, um, absolutely. And, and answering them would be nice maybe if but then those always seem to lead to more interesting riddles you know the answers are never that interesting think of every great work of detective fiction even something like Chinatown, which has a phenomenal ending, it's a little bit of a letdown when you get down to it because you like being in the mystery. That's what people don't understand about pulp fiction and detective fiction and hard-boiled fiction in general is that it's not about finding out that the conspiracy goes all the way to the top and you know everything's controlled by these puppet masters. The joy is in the snooping in the mm -hmm. in trying to find out what's going on but we are um we're gonna raise a lot of questions today i think but before we get into that i'd like to do my weekly call to action thanks everybody for participating so far uh it's been really great we continue to grow it's all good i feel like a broken record i'm really sorry if people are tired of hearing this but it's important you know it's important to let everyone know that your efforts are uh, well appreciated and that they're actually working. If you enjoy this show, I would appreciate it if you could show it to your friends on social media, show it to a friend in real life, you know, um, print out our logo and post it on a telephone pole somewhere. I don't know. Uh, if you are following this on the JDO show, what I'm going to do, because I, I do want people to shift over to the No Country uh, uh, official feed, is that I'm actually going to only be featuring the first half of the episode on the JDO show from now on, and then the rest of the show is over here, because I just kind of want to get everybody corralled into one space. But that about does it for the housekeeping end. Um, send your thoughts, concerns, what have you, to the butterfly in your mouth at gmail.com, which of course will be in the show notes, which are clickable. But on that note, did you have anything you wanted to add there, Chris? Uh, just a couple of pickups. Um, I wanted to acknowledge uh, uh, my friend Jim Earp, who is a loyal listener. Uh, he's been following, uh, and he, he mentioned um, the C.S. Lewis book, The Abolition of Man, which he loaned to me. I think people would know Lewis primarily maybe because of his fantasy. He was a colleague of Tolkien uh, as part of the Inklings group at Oxford. He's famous, of course, for the Narnia books and and uh, quite a few other interesting... He's a very interesting fantasy writer, I think. But he was also a Christian apologist. And The Abolition of Man is one of those uh, fairly rare books that I think um, 
crosses over from uh, its religious credentials into a humanist perspective that I think is, is relevant. So I was grateful to have that mentioned. Um, Jim also, uh, picking up on our headless episode earlier, reminded me of, of Robin Williams' uh, wonderful portrayal of the King of the Moon in the movie Baron Munchausen by Terry Gilliam, who's a director I really like and who at one point was uh, looking at my first novel, Zanesville. I, I wish that had come to pass. Um, but then one other thing that, that came to my attention or just I was reminded about in terms of our when we started off looking at this, the myths of progress, uh, we were talking about it from a mythic and religious angle very directly. And there are, of course, three great works of, of literature in the Western canon that deal specifically with a kind of journey. Uh, the Divine Comedy by Dante, of course, Paradise Lost, Milton's great epic poem, and The Pilgrim's Pro Progress by uh, by Bunyan, um, where we move from the city of destruction to the celestial city. Uh, this idea of progress being uh, a pilgrimage, you know, is, is a really crucial idea. And uh, to go to one of our uh, mutual heroes, David, you know, uh, Rupert Sheldrake talks about, he, he is a, a very open Christian, uh, and he talks about the, the importance of, of pilgrimage, and he has taken his son to uh, some of the great cathedrals in England uh, as part of a kind of you know, personal family mm -hmm. uh, journey. And I think that's interesting to look at that in very practical terms, that it, it, you can certainly uh, supply more meaning to that if you, the more uh, de you know, deistically you're inclined. But just historically and in terms of a kind of family and personal goal, I mean, I think the pilgrimage idea, a road trip, you know, a road trip, is, that's a secular pilgrimage, right? Mm -hmm. and, and what could be more pop culture than, than road trips? So just to reinforce that earlier sort of aspect of, of progress as a journey, because um, we're, we're going to be looking still at the idea of progress across a couple of other major areas of culture. Um, I think that's a good place to sort of get rolling, is to think of it very much in terms of a journey, um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is a little bit more dimensional than just a linear, uh, you know, an arrow shot into the air. Uh, it's a little bit more uh, textured, I think, in terms of real life and real human experience. So that's my background message. Um, and then I have some thoughts on where we might uh, uh, head this episode. Excellent. I would also, you mentioning C.S. Lewis, I wouldn't be able to continue without mentioning my personal favorite, which is the Screw Tape Letters. Um, yes, absolutely. I think absolutely. that's a great book of Christian apologetics. It's about a, a, a demon, an old mentor demon, who's writing letters to his protege who is attempting as, as well as he can to corrupt a man's soul. And it's this great device because the demon puts forth all of these different temptations that the protege can offer to the man. And he gets increasingly frustrated as the man becomes uh, more and more Christian. Um, it's, it's very quick. It's a very quick read. Uh, but I also think it has a lot of great 
life advice and it's just a lot of fun to read and on the note of the of the journey again kind of as we were talking about at the beginning of the show the destination is never as interesting as you think it's going to be <laughs> you know what i, I mean yeah when you, once you've, once you've named something it's already dead as somebody said i'm not sure who said that but it's the searching and the looking and the fumbling around in the dark that's where things get really interesting it's the rabbit holes that you that you go down it reminds me of a family taking a road trip i'm i'm sure this was in a cartoon or a movie or something but you know they're driving down the road and they see these billboards for you know the thing right and there are these evil eyes on the billboard and as they pass they they realize that going to see the thing is going to take them you know a hundred miles out of the way they're going to miss you know the the scenic sunset at the grand canyon and the kids are yelling in the back seat that they want to see the thing they want to see the thing and they finally get to the destination and, and the thing is it's like a fish tank full of sea monkeys or something like that <laughs> yeah and um so you know at the end of it we might find a fish tank full of sea monkeys but that's an that's also an interesting digression in its own way it's being able to pivot on your feet and realize that every ending that you think you're getting to is actually just another stop on the way right but on that note chris what are we going to talk about today okay well we we began this series looking at five different streams of the idea of, of progress. Mm -hmm. The first we looked at was the mythic religious angle. And then we looked at the biological angle, which is of course most uh, clearly put forward in uh, the theory of evolution, um, which involves uh, Darwin, Wallace, and Lamarck's earlier work. It, it's quite, a, there's actually a lot of history to uh, how the theory of evolution has developed and a lot of interesting problems with it still, even if those aren't necessarily known to the general public. But then the third level is the technological, uh, which is where we said a lot of people, that's their notion of progress. I think if you ask my students, that might be one of the key things. And they would contrast that with uh, progress in a social sense, which David, you started us off uh, looking at your definition of progress, and it really had to do with social justice issues of women's rights, civil rights, mm -hmm. uh, equity, mm -hmm. you know, the kinds of, of you know, diversity and inclusion uh, topics that, that we're hearing a lot of in the media today. I, I would like to start by putting forward um, a, a juxtaposition and a binary and a fundamental conflict, which I think is particularly characteristic of American society and American history. Um, and it ties into a class that I've developed and have taught at a, a few universities now, which I nickname, what, it blame it on the space needle, visions of the future. And the thesis is that Americans' idea of progress is torn between the technological, engineering inventions, the great you know, physical innovations, the phone, the car, the computer, the microchip, etc., versus social progress, uh, women's suffrage, um, the uh, end of, of the separatist South, uh, voting rights, uh, LGBTQ rights, you know, 
that kind of humanist sort of conflict. Uh, we, we're, we have a hard time, it seems to me in America, balancing our notions of technology as the, the mechanisms of progress and public policy, uh, changes in, in human consciousness and political ideology as the mechanisms. And when I looked at uh, the Space Needle, I, I developed the class when I was teaching in Seattle, and that, of course, is the symbol of the city. I'm sure people would recognize it instantly. It's a, it's a kind of a strange icon, in a way, because it's a whimsical, uh, somewhat silly, but I think nonetheless aesthetically beautiful, um, sculpture in terms of architecture. Even when it was produced in 1962 as the centerpiece of the World's Fair, it was already kind of nostalgic and innocent. It represented an American and, and predominantly white view of a technological utopia, a sort of Jetson space age of, you know, personal back, you know, uh, jetpacks and backyard heliports and uh, everything would be push button and all our problems would be solved. And so I started looking at the, the World's Fair of 1962 with its theme of progress as a kind of text. The, the, the significant architecture still survives, but there's all of the original communications surrounding the fair. And it's very, very interesting to read as a three-dimensional uh, text on the vision of the future of that period because it, it has nothing to do with the social issues that we face today. Um, it's, it's a very uh, white, Jetsons-y sort of vision that's almost, uh, well, it's amazing for its innocence and its lack of wokeness, in a sense. Right. And yet it's absolute rabid commitment to, to technology as being the solution. And as if you know, if the technical solutions are there, they're going to just naturally be equitably dispersed or accessed, and we know that's not true. Um, so I think, and one way to think of this, if for, for people who are familiar with William Gibson, who um, achieved a great deal of fame with his first book, Neuromancer, uh, quite an amazing look at uh, virtual reality and, and a kind of Blade Runner world. He was very influenced by, uh, by the movie Blade Runner. He hadn't, I don't believe he'd read any Philip K. Dick actually at the time. Uh, but he wrote a, 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 a short story, which is in the, the book Burning Chrome, called The Gernsbach Continuum. And uh, Gernsbach was, of course, the name of a famous editor in the science fiction field. And the, the story is really a kind of more of an essay, um, a cultural studies essay, than it is a, a short story proper. But it's a look, at a projection into the future of what the world, and particularly American society, would be like if, in a sense, the world of the space needle had permeated reality. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a very interesting thing for, for readers uh, to look at. So... What do you think about this underlying thesis of mine that we have a conflict rather than a collaborative, cooperative effort between the idea of technological progress and social progress?
progress. Let's just look at that thesis to start with. What's, what's your view of that? Hmm. That is a very interesting question. I think that, so there are two ways. Okay, so I'll play devil's advocate to begin with. And you could say that people who are of a lower income now have access to things like uh, food, for example. We have a lot of agricultural production that's technologically advanced, and that allows people to have food on their plates. Well, the issue with that is what kind of food are we talking about here? Now, the, <laughs> the, the trash that we eat is better than no food, although that gets troubled as well, doesn't it? Because I'm not really sure that three meals a day of McDonald's is really uh, is better than not eating at all for a day. So you could also say that when it comes I'm sure. to... <laughs> I'm sure it's not. I think you're yeah. onto something here. Let it roll. So, and then you could say that there are social justice movements, particularly the Arab Spring, that were helped along by social media, Twitter in particular, by hashtags and the it's the ever-present college-age uh, question of of raising awareness. If we raise awareness for something, does it does it go away? But the Arab Spring was not very successful, and I would argue in our recent past, you know, the 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 BLM protests slash riots of the summer of 2020, I think those were very well popularized, popularized by social media. There were people out with cameras who were, you know, sort of filming the police engaged in all these gross abuses of power. And nothing is really different in April of 2021, as far as I can tell. The system is still very much in place. So I wonder if technology presents a, a kind of dangerous pit that you can fall into if you are inclined to think of it as uh, a, a progressive tool, right? You think that you're doing something and the powers that be allow you to uh, sort of fight with other people with no power in this gladiatorial arena while they continue about their their business completely unabated and then when it comes to things like food production i mean you know so we have these this technological progress when it comes to, or progress rather when it comes to you know the ability to harvest a lot of wheat but there are very smart people who feel like civilization took a really bad turn and they pinpoint it directly at the invention of agriculture, right? The yes, movement indeed. away I'm one from of them. yeah, I would I would be right there with you as well. The movement away from a tribal society in which, um, not to say that these were the the sort of the pinnacle of of gender fluidity or anything like that, but societies in which every member of a tribe traded jobs and had a kind of um, an understanding of their role within a small group uh, where they were able to hunt wild game that was raised on grass that was untouched by pesticides um, and live to be relatively old. You know, it's a big myth that we have that uh, that people 
just you know were dying in mass before the invention of, of modern medicine, for example. The difference is uh, obviously in childbirth. The, the childbirth statistics skewed the average age of death down into the 30s, but that was just because so many children were dying. So we can say that we've made strides in um, the OBGYN area of science. That's that's a good. I would say that that is a good that comes along with a lot of bad, but that is is largely a good. But back to my original point, people people survived into their 80s and 90s in the past with no modern farming, with no modern medicine, um, with with none of the things that we think of as technological progress. So I think that there is a real tension, and I think that rather than being an like an agent of social change, I think it's an agent of... I think that it is a distractionary measure. I think that in almost every way possible that you could mean it, you know? It's all meant to distract and poison and keep people keep people in their chains, essentially. But you think that you're out. You think you're you think you're moving around and that you're free, but you're you're really not. I think that's really exactly what's happening. And and I mean, one of the it, it's a beautiful thing is that you can say, well, equity would mean in part uh, greater access to technology and, and technologically driven opportunity. But I think you could also say that true equity would mean the freedom to opt out of certain Perfect. programs. Perfect. And nobody has the means to do that. Getting off the grid, getting free of technology and and really we also mean by that capitalism as well is very difficult for us all to achieve and so when this idea of i mean it's a little bit of the drug dealing model it's it's kind of the drug dealing and also uh evangelism for from any religious point of view of get people hooked get people onto it and then they can't get out of it Mm -hmm. and then you can always say well look you know these things are really positive. They're really helpful. You know, Steven Pinker wrote, uh, you know, a whole book just which broke, you know, just before COVID really came out about, you know, things are getting better all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I, I sort of admire his, uh, his optimism there. I'd like to share it. I unfortunately don't think of much of him. He's a CIA uh, operative. He's I, in the CIA. I have some real doubts about Dr. Pinker. Um, but it, it really is interesting that we, we can think that the, the technological is going to bring us forward into a brave new world. And then every once in a while we think about brave new world in 1984 and we start to think, oh my God, we're already there and we're not liking it so much. You know? Exactly. And I want to go back real quick to your idea of opting out because this has been something that's haunted me since I was 18 years old and told that I needed to go to college so that I could get a job and this and this and this. The system of capitalism that we have right now, or really anything, any system around the world, I'm pretty sure with a few exceptions, everybody has to quote unquote work for a living. So you have this system that is created that says that you need to make money so that you can survive. 
Uh, and the way that you do that is by sacrificing most of your life doing something that you don't care about just really to live. And it's so frustrating to not be allowed to say, well, I don't, I don't want to do that. I don't, you know, well, we have this system where anybody can become rich. Well, I don't want to be rich, <laughs> you know, like I, th- th- there's, there's no end game here for a person like me. And you see this a lot with, as you said, people who want to get off the grid. Um, it's very difficult. It also costs a lot of money. There are currently, um, you know, social issues and medical issues going on around the world right now where people are, you know, they, they're they kind of being forced to opt in to, you know, medical procedures that they might not want to. And it's it's kind of this whole thing where, you know, when when do we draw a line and say, you know, hey, just just leave me be. I'm I'm good where I am. Well, that gets back to something that we talked about last, you know, episode of, of a very very simple uh, and real life situation every day. You know, are you moving forward in your life, your mm-hmm. personal life, or are you going backwards? Heaven mm-hmm. forbid. Or are you just standing still? Mm-hmm. Which that that doesn't sound very. So we are already casting. The, the whole arc of life in terms of a red queen scenario, essentially, of having to run faster, to stay in one place. We can't just be still in one place because then people are going, well, you're, you're static. Your life is just on hold, you know, those kinds of things. You, you have to have some kind of ambition. Uh, oftentimes, the only form of that that really is... is socially valuable and and kind of relaxes people is is if you want more money i mean mm-hmm. that's something you can say to people and they go okay i understand that right um i mean if you want more knowledge if you want more sense of connection i mean if people will nod along with that but uh i mean you, you certainly don't want to say well i want to create great art because a lot of people <laughs> you know are going to go oh you know and they'll smile at you, but they'll move down to the other end of the bar. Yeah, you know? kind of roll their it, eyes, get a load of this guy. Yeah. So it's uh, it's a real problem that way. And I think that we need to be very alert to the issues that technological uh, progress, supposedly, uh, creates for us. And the fact that we're, we're at a point now... Well, I'd, I'd suggest a lot of people feel like that's just out of their control, that they no longer have any way to to stay on the conveyor belt other than just, you know, to be grateful they're, they're managing to hold it all. Uh, and then there are a few people who think they're out leading the charge. Um, and they may be, you know, uh, they may be pioneering the singularity. Uh, but that doesn't really uh, solve a lot of the problems of the moment. And and just to get back to Seattle as the city you know mm-hmm. that hosted the sixty two World's Fair, that event was all about civic boosterism. It was an attempt to lure to the city, which was still fairly undiscovered then, um, and just a basically beautiful regional center, not really a city proper in a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
there was concern that Boeing was the only industry in town, and that was that made everything vulnerable. Uh, if Boeing, you know, stock went down, it was people getting laid off. So mm -hmm. the civic-minded people then tried to really get some other technology involved, and and they were very successful. You know, eventually Microsoft would start their Amazon. I mean, I think we think of, of Seattle as, as kind of Silicon Valley North, you mm -hmm. know. Mm -hmm. But meanwhile, meanwhile, it's impossible to visit that city today and not be aware of, of the, just the shocking and tragic level of homelessness and its attendant problems of, of open air mental illness, massive drug addiction, uh, a tremendous disparity in wealth. I mean, we have a very elite group of highly intellectual, educated people um, with living a great lifestyle and then we have people really you know uh pissing themselves in in pretty sad parks that have been taken over and it, it doesn't look like a progressive achievement to me when i think of seattle it looks mm -hmm. to me exactly like my thesis of the conflict between techno utopia and a social humanist utopia mm -hmm. And when you mentioned people in parks, I've been thinking a lot about homelessness lately and reading up on it and finding out what causes it. A lot of the answers are not particularly interesting. It's drug abuse. Um, sometimes you get people who have fallen into just you know a sequence of events that is highly improbable but has put a quote-unquote regular normal person in those situations but a lot of it again it has to do with drugs but there's a third type of person who is homeless and i think that there is if you think of homelessness right as a spirit or a hyperstitional being and you think what does homelessness actually want what is homelessness trying to express in in the broad you know way of thinking there are people who are homeless who are directly rebuffing the idea of modernity, technology, things like living in a house. There's a, a great film from a few years back, and it's called Leave No Trace. And it's about a father oh, and daughter. Yes. You see that one? That was great. Uh, yes. Yeah. Good for you to mention that. Yeah. So Ben Ben Foster is the lead in that. He, he's a great actor. And he plays a, a Iraq War vet with PTSD who lives with his daughter in Forest Park in Portland, Oregon. And the movie takes great care. It's actually a very, it's a family-friendly film, which is rare these days. I think it's PG or something like that. But he, he takes great pains to make sure that his daughter has, for all intents and purposes, a great life living with him in the woods. And there are, it's, it's a pretty heartbreaking movie because they get found by CPS and they force him to uh, move into this house that they provide. It's essentially showing a system that is doing its best to get this guy housed, right? But his PTSD won't let him. He can't be indoors, right? So he's torn between, you know, does he stay and care for his daughter or does he go and live out in the woods the way that the only way that he feels comfortable in his own skin? So in the movie you have, you know, these reasons for it. He has post-traumatic stress disorder. I mentioned earlier people who have drug addictions, right? People who have mental illnesses like schizophrenia, right? But all of that is to say that it, it feels to me like a psychic movement uh, that re that's rejecting the norm, right? You see a lot of these 
pop-ups in different cities from Los Angeles to San Francisco. It's much more of a West Coast thing than an East Coast thing now that I think about it. But you see perfectly um, uh, familyed people, uh, usually young people. Sometimes they're a bit trust fundy, other times not. But people who have decided to live in tent cities in parks. Um, sometimes this ends in tragedy. There was a recent news story of a of a young, a promising young woman. I believe she was going to Harvard, who got involved in one of these tent cities and uh, unfortunately overdosed on fentanyl. So all of these warts aside, there the tent city is both a symbol of capitalistic excess, this kind of brutal cutthroat system that leaves people behind, but looked at through another lens, if we give those people a little bit of agency, it's also, in my opinion, an act of rebellion, maybe, you know? I, I think that is an excellent, excellent humanist insight into this, and it ties into a couple of things that we've been talking about from the very beginning. I think it's one way to look at, uh, it harkens back to the indigenous populations around the world who are resisting Western and Asian civilization, technology, you know, the, the mediated world. Uh, they, they don't want it. Uh, mm -hmm. They don't want it in New Guinea, they don't want it in Borneo, they don't want it in parts of South America. There are parts of Africa that are still resisting it. They, they really want to do not be on that radar. And it is an act of rebellion. Um, in the Indonesian part of, of New Guinea Island, I mean, it, it's a very, you know, intense rebellion. And it's, it's hard to not have admiration for those people. Of course, they probably ultimately will be overwhelmed because their habitat is filled with such incredible resources in terms of timber and minerals. And, uh, you know, the developed nations won't leave them alone. But uh, you have to admire that. And I think that is, if we are going to, to look at agency, which is really a sign of, of basic respect, isn't it? That's kind of really mm -hmm. what the idea mm -hmm. of, of giving someone credit for that is. Hi, everybody. Thanks for listening. The rest of this episode can be found over at nocountrypod.podbean.com. Once again, the rest of this episode can be found over at the official No Country feed at nocountrypod.podbean.com. If you can't find it, it is linked up in the show notes at the very end of the show notes. So uh, yeah, check those out. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. I appreciate you. Bye.